So James chapter 2, verse 1 says this, my dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious Christ-organized faith. How many of you know if you live for their praises, you die by their criticisms? How many of you know if you care what people think, you cannot simultaneously care what he thinks? How many of you know you got to make up your mind, am I going to please God or am I going to please people? How many of you know you can't please all the people all the time like Bob Marley said? (laughs) Do you all understand, though, that people-pleasing is usually the result of some brokenness on the inside of you that needs their affirmation. And so right off the jump, the second chapter in the book of James says, hey, dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out this Christ-organized faith. Then he goes to the next line, and this is what he says. If a man enters your church wearing an expensive suit, And then a street person wearing rags comes in right after him. And you say to the man in the suit, hey, sit here, sir. This is the best seat in the house. And either ignore the street person or you tell that street person, hey, better sit here in the back row. Haven't you segregated God's children and proved that you are judges who can't be trusted? (sighs) Okay, hold on. I think sometimes I've gotten a reputation for being a harsh preacher. I get a reputation for, man, Pastor Mike, sometimes when he's preaching, man, he really goes in, it can be harsh. But can I tell you, when you read the Bible, you find out that Mike Signorelli is significantly nicer than the scriptures and that I'm softening the blow before it hits you in the dome and that my most convicting hardcore sermons are literally child's play in comparison to actually reading the Bible unfiltered. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? And sometimes people are like, man, Pastor Mike's convicting. Have you read the words of Jesus for yourself? He turned to a woman of ill repute, and he literally tells this woman, okay, now I stopped you from getting rocks thrown at your face and being murdered in the streets, and she's thanking him, and you know what she, she hears him say next? Go and sin no more. She didn't say, he didn't say, now go find a synagogue and go on a journey to figure out how you can stop lusting and sinning in the area of lust and confess it to people and get a support group. He said, yeah, just don't ever do it again. (laughs) By that standard, he'd be the meanest pastor in America. Can you imagine coming to me for pastoral counseling and you tell me how you struggle with lust and I tell you, yeah, just don't ever do it again. You're lucky God didn't kill you already. It's so listen, Jesus says, hey, hey, if you can't stop sinning with your hand, chop your hand off so then the rest of your body can go to heaven. What? Jesus, I thought you loved me. Oh, I do love you. I just hate sin. So I just want to realign that I am not mean, but when you allow the word of God to do a work on the inside of you, it will not give you the kind of leeway that you hope it would give you. Matter of fact, the Bible doesn't call you out. It calls you up, up to the next level, up to righteous living, up to holiness, up to purity. But then Jesus said, I'll do you better. I'll empower you with my spirit. So because I know you can't do it, but through me, you can do all things, which means living lust free, living without addiction. And so he never commands us to do something that he doesn't empower us to walk out. So that is the story of the gospel. It's stop doing it, but let me empower you so you can truly stop. Does this make sense? Not this Americanized self-help. I'm going to confess it, but never repent. Confession is admitting it. Repentance is walking away and never doing it. And we have raised a generation that got good at confessing but never got good at repenting. And so this is what James is doing. James is echoing his brother, Jesus. And you know, when I say brother, half-brothers, right? Same mom, different dad. Y'all know what, some of you know what I'm talking about. 
And so he's echoing Jesus, and, the, and I have to set this up from the beginning. I know I'm only like three verses in, but I need you to understand that James is speaking to the first century church just years after Jesus ascended. Historians believe that the book of James may be the very first epistle that we ever had. And so we're going back to the original source, and we're hearing the way that the leader over the church of Jerusalem talked to the church. And this is before YouTube, before Instagram, before television before radio, this is like the closest we can get to its purest form and he's already gutting them out and he's saying if a man walks in with a suit and you give that guy a front row seat in your church but then another guy comes off the street in rags and you sit him in the back, you actually are demonstrating you do not understand the supernatural things of God at all and he starts going in. So whatever happens from now till the rest of the sermon, don't blame it on your pastor, blame it on James. And when you get to heaven, you say, James, I was mad at you. Pastor Mike didn't wanna say what he had to say, but he was just quoting you. Are you guys with me? Okay. So let me, let me break this down for you. He says, either you ignore the street person or say, better sit here in the back row. Haven't you segregated God's children and proved that you are judges who can't be trusted? Listen, dear friends, this is verse five. Isn't it clear by now that God operates quite differently? He chooses the world's down and out as the kingdom's first citizens with full rights and privileges. The kingdom is promised to anyone who loves God. And here you are abusing these same citizens. Isn't it the high and mighty who exploit you? Who, who use the courts to rob you blind? Aren't they the ones who scorn the new name Christians used in your baptisms? So in other words, James is saying, you guys are using this phrase Christians now and you're calling yourself Christians, and you're being abused by the world. They're the ones taking you into the governmental system and robbing you blind in the court system, and then people are gonna come into our congregations, and you're gonna treat them the way they get treated by the world? In other words, how did we become the only army that shoots our own? I mean, isn't that what church life is? Come on in, we'll tell you you love us until you do something differently than us. Oh, it got real quiet. We have a tendency in Christianity to allow our preferences to block God's purposes. You know, here in this city, there's a prolific pastor named Jim Cimbala, and he has a campus uh, you know, in Brooklyn downtown that is called the Brooklyn Tabernacle. How many of you have ever heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir? And he's been a faithful servant to this city for decades. And he's seen a lot. But one of his uh, stories that marked me as a New York City pastor so deeply, he had a daily prayer event that would happen. And every day he opens up his doors and people come to pray. They pray on their lunch break from work and all that. Well, one day in particular, a guy came and he was asking for money. And he was, you know, I need money. He came off the street. Now listen, New York City homeless is a whole nother level of, of stench. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, if you've ever, I mean, gotten in proximity of somebody who lives in the streets, you know what I'm talking about. It's a whole nother level. And he was so, Jim Cimbala was so repulsed by this man's smell. And then he's looking out and he's seeing the people from Wall Street and the people from the business and the financial arena that are in this church. And he's thinking, oh no, I'm ruining, ruining the environment for these people. And I, I, I don't wanna kick this guy out, but I don't know what to do with him. And he's trying to get rid of him. And Jim says, I literally opened up my wallet to give this guy money just so he would leave the church. And the guy, the homeless guy looks at Jim Cimbala this renowned, famous pastor says, Pastor, I didn't come here for your money. I want Jesus. And that broke him because the way that guy smelled, the way that guy looked, he was so worried about the other stakeholders of his church that he allowed his preferences to block God's purposes to reach that man. And then the Holy Spirit said, now, Jim, hug him. And he said, I don't want to hug him. He smells so bad. And the Holy Spirit said, hug him now. All of a sudden, he gets in close, and that smell increases, and he says he grabs that man, and all of a sudden, the stench of that homeless man begins to fill his nostrils, and the Holy Spirit spoke to Jim Cimbala and said, until you smell this smell, 
and the aroma of the stench of urine and feces coming off their lives smells like how I smell them, the love of a father. You're not like me. See, why do I say that? Because this church will never be the place for celebrity culture. In this church, we don't have a preference. It's all God's children, front row to the back row. The main, if we're gonna compete over anything, it's who's gonna give up their seat for somebody else. Who's gonna give up a place of preference because we want to begin to be like our father who when we carried the stench of sin. See, a homeless person, you can physically smell their stench, but how do we smell in the spiritual realm as we've been going about our business, doing our sin and our stuff, and yet God embraced us while we were yet sinners. He put his love out on the line and brought us close and said, I'll wash you with my blood. I'll cleanse you. I'll make you new. And James is saying, y'all, we're only 10 years into this thing and you've already made it a country club instead of a real congregation. Not here, y'all. So can I keep going? I told you, blame it on James. Just tell your neighbors, that was James. That, wasn't, that was not Pastor Mike. That was James. This is what he says. You do well when you complete the royal rule of the scriptures. Love others as you love yourself. But if you play up to those so-called important people, you go against the rule and you stand convicted by it. You can't pick and choose in these things, specializing in keeping one or two things in God's law and ignoring the other. The same God who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. If you don't commit adultery, but you go ahead and murder, do you think that your non-adultery will cancel out your murder? No, you're a murderer, period. Y'all, it got quiet. Some of you are like, look, I graduated. I used to struggle with lust, but now I'm not an adulterer anymore. And the Lord's saying, yes, but because you don't love your brother like you love yourself, you've, you, you are actually still a murderer. See, here's the thing. We rank sin in the church. Can you imagine standing before a holy, righteous God? And you're saying, God, I did better than my family. They killed people. They, I did better than my family. They cheated on their spouse. I did better than my family. I didn't smoke, drink. I didn't do Listen, I was reading my Bible all the time. And he said, yes, but the thing I have against you is you did not love other people like you loved yourself. Because that is a command. Y'all understand that? Loving someone else like you love yourself is not the golden rule you learn in kindergarten. It's a command by a righteous father that we have to walk out as believers. Okay, let me just say it like this. Um, Years ago, I had a prophetic dream. And in the prophetic dream, there was this woman named Heather who attended our Long Island campus and she was wearing shorts. And all of a sudden in the dream, she had legs that looked just like my legs and they were hairy like a man's legs. And I woke up and I said, God, that dream was disgusting. It was Heather with hairy legs and they looked like mine. What does that, I, it felt like it's prophetic, but ugh. And the Lord said, Mike, even though you're known for supporting ministry and women, there's still a bias in you. And what you don't see is that Heather has the ability to minister like you minister, but because she's a woman, you have not considered her for this position on your team. And he, and he said, I showed you her legs in those shorts and they look like your legs because I was trying to show you that she can run like you run. And all of a sudden, I said, oh, Lord, I'm a dummy. <laughs> Listen, you all think I got it figured out? I, I'm just more willing to be rebuked and corrected by him than you are. Because if you tell God, make work on me, God, oh, you better watch out. He'll work on you. I said, God, I want to be a better pastor to this church. I fell asleep after praying that prayer and woke up with a prophetic dream with Heather having hairy legs. I called Heather. I said, Heather, I want to talk to you about a team on our staff. We met with her, and I said, I, first of all, I want to repent to you because I was not acknowledging how God could use you. I missed it, but the Lord showed me in a dream. Then I told her the dream. She's like, that's very weird. 
but she began to cry and she said, yes, I wanna do this thing. And she stepped in as our director of operations and post-pandemic, every single campus we launched, everything that we've done, it came through her life and her ministry and I could not have done it without Heather. Come on, we honor her, right? At every location, we honor Heather in that season. But the reason why I say that is God was trying to do something, but I had a bias. And what James is simply saying is don't let your bias block God's blessings. Your bias will block his blessing. You know, the bias happens racially. Uh-oh, it got real, real quiet. I never thought I'd have a white pastor. Well, you got a white pastor. <laughs> I, I never thought I'd go to one of those churches. I never thought I'd have a pastor who speaks in tongues on the microphone. Well, I speak in tongues more than on the microphone. You know, don't, don't let your bias block. What if I told you that your spiritual sons and daughters are gonna be a different race than you? What if I told you that he's gonna bring you together? What if I told you that the person that he brings in your life that unlocks the most potential is gonna be somebody with the complete opposite skin color? Well, let me, you want to talk about white people, let's talk about Florian. He's so white, he's transparent. The only melanin he has on his whole body is a freckle. And Florian was one of my most difficult, it's okay to laugh. Everybody's like, can I laugh at that? Yeah, that's why I'm saying it. It's okay to laugh. Get over yourself. All this woke culture has got you afraid to laugh at stuff. It's funny. He's white. There's different layers of white. He's the whitest white. And he's Ukrainian, and you know, he comes from that region. But I'll tell you what, I raised him up as a disciple, and right now he's got a team of V1 church people, and they're in Honduras with Gracie, and they're ministering to all these different people, and I wept last night because he was sending me over pictures and videos. And one of the pictures is Florian as an ambassador of the Father's heart. And you know what he's doing? He embraced this man, doesn't look anything like him. He's down in Honduras and it's brown and it's white. And he hugged this man. And then that man takes his phone and he uses Google Translate. And, and Florian showed me a picture of the phone. And it says, the man in Honduras says, I was never hugged by my father. But when you hugged me, it broke me free to another level. And I felt the love of our heavenly father and he's telling them this what business do they have hugging each other other than the gospel breaks every barrier and says there is no black no white no brown there is just sons and daughters of the king and there is neither male nor female jew nor gentile we are one in christ you know and, and we, oh, i don't have time to say it all but i think the blessing is when we remove the barrier that we've set up in our own mind. And then the politicians of New York City say, how do they got that kind of unity in their midst? Uh, well, you can't legislate this. This is the gospel. When they begin to see, it, you know, that the early church was one of the, one of the hallmarks of the early, early church that proved that there was something spiritual happening in their midst is that they loved people that weren't like them. That was, I mean, listen, they cast demons out, they prayed for the sick, and they saw miracles, but did you know, in addition to those signs, one of the, the most incredible things that actually was perplexing was how they would begin to love other people, and they'd say, there is no explanation for that love. Does this make sense? They would say, it doesn't make sense, because in the natural, we love those who look like us. We love those who carry our genetic resemblance. We love people that come from our block. Oh yeah, you don't know what it is. I'm Queens. No, I'm Bronx. No, I'm Manhattan. No, I'm Staten Island. Nobody's cheering for Staten Island. <laughs> but it's, you know, this is the way we, we divide ourselves. So we can't even be New York City. We have to be our borough. And then we can't be our borough. We have to be our block. And then we can't be our block. We have to be our building. And then we can't be our building. We have to be our floor. See, what we do is divide. It's in our fallen nature to do that. And so the thing that's going to confuse the world is when we come together and say, I know this doesn't make sense to you, but, but all the walls come down and we are united and they can't stop that. And I'm, I'm telling you this ahead of an election. This is a prophetic sermon. Remember this when you find out that the person sitting next to you voted differently. Oh, Lord Jesus. <laughs> I 
Okay? You do well when you complete the royal rule of the scripture, love others as you love yourself. Let's talk about that. Do you know that the only thing that you don't need to be taught in life is how to love yourself? You're born with that. It's instinct, protection. You know, you'll find food. You'll find, you'll find, you'll find a way to satiate your own desire. Listen, anybody who has kids know that kids know how to love themselves. I'll never forget having my first kid, and Bella, I'm telling you, I brought, these, this, I don't know if the guys remember this, but plasma TVs were the thing. And I said, I'm get, I work hard, I'm getting a plasma TV. And I bought that plasma TV, and I brought it into our house, and I set that thing up, and I said, I got the best TV in the neighborhood. This is back in the day, this is, and all of a sudden, one day I hear this noise from the kitchen, clink, 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 and I go in the living room and there is my daughter with her mermaid toy bashing my plasma screen. And in that moment, I realized I am capable of abuse. I'm not gonna do it, but I'm capable. And, and I'm looking at my daughter. So I waited till it was over because I figured, what am I gonna do now? So then all of a sudden she goes back to her room and she's playing with her toy. And I said, I said, hey, Bella, Daddy wants to talk to you. Did you break Daddy's TV? She said, oh, no. I, I didn't break your TV. My mermaid broke your TV. <laughs> and I said, that marine spirit from Starbucks that my wife brought in, I knew she shouldn't drink Starbucks with that mermaid on it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> All the delivery. Only our church would think that was funny. Only our church would, would understand that. That, that marine spirit, that mermaid did do it. Possessed my daughter to break daddy's TV. Now how much deliverance we have to do today. But you know what's funny? I remember being horrified realizing I never taught my daughter to lie. See, once you have kids, you'll realize human beings are not born a blank slate. We like to think that. They're born a blank slate and then society corrupts them. No, society is corrupted because we were born corruptible. It's in you to lie. It's in you to steal. It's in you to seek your own desire. That's your fallen nature. And you know what? You inherited it going all the way back to Adam and Eve. I can't wait to see how many people try to jump Eve in heaven. <laughs> Eve has her own security detail. For you get into heaven, you take your earrings off. This is for every period I ever had. This is for every, somebody's like, this is for when I gave birth without. <laughs> Until you realize that you're Eve. <laughs> and then you start putting your earrings back on. Then you put your shoes back on. You realize if you were in the garden, you'd have done the same because your garden was called the Bronx and you did it too. Your garden was called Long Island. You did. Come on, y'all. I'm coming for you today. Oh, wait. Let me show you my hoodie. <laughs> Jehovah Sassy is in the house. <laughs> I, I, you got me sweating up here, y'all. Blame it on James. Just tell your neighbor it was James. Okay, so love others as you love yourself. It sounds like this frou-frou thing that we teach kids in kindergarten, but the reality is nobody has to teach you how to love yourself. So when Christ, he was unlocking this mystery to say, hey, if you wanna understand how to be my disciple, just, you know how obsessively you think about yourself? Think about other people like that. You know how you were thinking about eating every two hours? Think about feeding somebody else every two hours. You know how you're thinking about how you wanna build your bank account? Think about giving money to other people and building their bank account. That, that's literally what Jesus, he's trying to say, you understand how to obsess over yourself and so just turn, I can't stop you from obsessing because I created you to worship. It's just obsess about somebody else. See, worship is when you obsess over him, and discipleship is when you obsess over them. I, 
that literally, if you do what I just said, you will fulfill your entire purpose. Because once you stop obsessing over your destiny and obsess about fulfilling their destiny, your destiny becomes fulfilled. It's just the way to get is to give, but the way to lose is to get. Oh, come on. This is what James is trying to say. Okay, let me break it down for you. Do you know who never starves? The chef. Because while you're cooking food, you're able to eat the scraps on the side. You know, come on, man. I live in New York City. The baker's always got 20, 30 extra pounds. Little for you, little for me. See, the person who never starves is the one that's feeding others. And so you can spend your whole life fighting over food out there, or you can spend your whole life fighting to make food for people and live better. This is a, I'm speaking in a mystery because we are in one of the most self-obsessed societies that ever existed, and, and really depression, it, it actually demands obsession. The more you think about yourself, it becomes paralyzing. And so depression is the result of obsession. And so when you begin to worship God and say, God, I'm going to turn my obsession into focus on you, then you begin to obsess over those around you. What happens is your sanity is in your serving. And as you increase in serving, you increase in sanity. As you decrease in serving, you decrease in sanity, which is why we have a mental health issue. It's not a mental health issue in its origin. That is the manifestation of selfishness. And what happens when you stop thinking about you and you start thinking about him and you start thinking about them, all of a sudden you'll find you don't need a pill to be prescribed because your pill is called worship. Your pill is called serving. I'm telling you, I got a better supply and why don't you try getting high on this supply? We are over-medicated because we're obsessed with ourselves. Okay, let me tell you because I'm gonna go back to the book of James chapter two. I was depressed, and this was, I mean, I was in a deep depression, and I had the house and all that, and I'll never forget being in my garage, and I had my little iPhone, and this is right when you could first start watching videos and stuff, and I'm, I'm watching the news, and it says, New York devastated by Hurricane Sandy, and my, the words of my mentor when I was 16 years old, uh, his name's Joey Miranda, and he was my first mentor in ministry. I started preaching in 1998, And Joey Miranda used to always tell me, son, look at me. Your sanity is in your serving. Your sanity is in your serving. And I was just like, I get it, Joe, I get it. And he's like, no, you don't get it. Your sanity is in your serving. He kept saying that. So I remember what happened was I saw the New Yorkers being devastated by Hurricane Sandy and the words of Joey Miranda echoed through time. And I said, and I told my wife, I said, I think I know what to do. I need to go serve these people. The truth is I showed up to New York with a selfish motive cloaked in selflessness. But see, what happened was, I remember going to the South Shore here in the city and seeing one block, the entire block, uh, the, the house is burned down. I think a car started on fire because of the water and all that, and then it caught a house that caught all the houses. And when I was holding the people who were weeping because their house and everything in it had been lost, suddenly I began to think back to my house And all of a sudden, my depression began to diminish because somebody had it worse than me. The gift of serving people in Brooklyn every single month is because my wife and I, we stand in that line and we hand out food. And see, it's cold. And I've I've reached a point in my life where I don't have to be in that food line anymore. But see, when you start thinking, I don't have to be in that food line because I don't need food you're missing out on the fact that you have to be distributing food to the line because your spirit is starving. Because there's something about serving. People are like, why why do they obsess at V1 about dream team? Why are they always talking about joining a team? Can I tell you the secret? It's not for us, it's for you. It's not for us, it's for you. As a matter of fact, No matter how bad my week has ever been, when I wake up on Sunday and I come in early to any one of our locations, I get so consumed with other people and shaking hands and hugging them, praying for them, preaching, and then guess what happens? It's the best eight hours of my week because it's the eight hours where I didn't think about myself. And I come out and I say, wow, I feel so much better. 
It's medicine. It's medicine. It's medicine. Dear friends, okay, I'm going to move to the next section, and then we're going to close. Are you all still with me? Dear friends, do you think that you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved, and you say, hey, good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ in Jesus' name. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Ghost and fire. This is how I believe James was writing this letter, by the way. This was the intention of, he's being sassy. Because he's saying they're coming in in rags. They're starving. And you're so obsessed with the supernatural. And you want to be a prophet so badly. This is what he's saying. That you look at somebody who's naked and you say, be clothed in Jesus Christ. And they're like, yo, I'm developing hypothermia. I think I'm 19 minutes away from death. Can I get a shirt? I'm starving. I haven't eaten in three days. I'm going to die. I don't need a prophecy. I need a meal. And can I just tell you what grieves my heart? And I know they're gonna make clips out of this part right now, but I'm a shepherd that has to raise up the body of Christ and I'm an apostolic global leader. I reach 30 million people a month through my YouTube channel and it's a high honor and a very, very important mission. And I'm afraid that what's happening in the supernatural prophetic culture is they're showing you their six-figure blinged-out watch. They're showing you their car. By the way, they probably rented it and has a CarMax sticker on the license plate. They're showing you their house that they probably Airbnb'd for the photo shoot. And they're creating this value that, oh, pay all this money to come to our training and we'll make you a profit. Are they talking P-R-O-P-H-E-T or P-R-O-F-I-T? And they're creating a value that you think that if I become a prophet and operate the supernatural like them, maybe I'll have their life. But see, that what, we're, what we have in scripture is you, you may get a six-figure watch, but don't you dare be obsessed with the material possession. You may get the house, but have you built God's house? You may get the car, but you're gonna end up at the wrong destination. See, and this is the thing, like what James was saying It's like you've become so prophetic that you give a word, but it's pathetic because those same people are starving and dying. And so guess what? Don't take my prophetic course. There's a reason why I offer the breakers training for free, and there's ministers that literally canceled me because they make so much money off of charging people how to do the things that the Holy Spirit gives us for free. And 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 this is not gonna be a popular message. But it's impossible for me as a man of God to read the book of James and say, how dare we disciple people and and to, to use the supernatural to bling, but not use it to feed, not use it to clothe. And there's a dichotomy that's happening here and, and what James is trying to do is he's trying to bring these two ideas that feel like they're in opposition and bring them into alignment. And what happens is when you are the influencer on Instagram and you show people, telling people their address, telling people their phone number, but, not, but you don't show yourself feeding the poor, clothing those who are in need, what happens is your disciples are obsessed with their, their highest endeavor is can I prophetically be so accurate that I can tell you your phone number while you starve to death. And so what's happening is there's got to be a counterbalance. And what James is saying is we don't dismiss the prophetic, but in, in in overemphasizing the prophetic, what's happened is we stop being salt and light because New York City doesn't care how prophetic you are. New York City wants to, they don't want to know that we care. They don't want to know what we know until they know that we care. Have you ever heard that before? And there's all kinds of charlatans. There's all kinds of, you know, the, you, the psychic mediums and the warlocks. They're all here, the new age occultists. But they're not looking, they're looking for people to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Now, does that mean we're not gonna prophesy as a church? Of course we're gonna prophesy. But here's what happens. We become a church that moves in power when we're a church that says, I fed your body, now let me feed your soul. I've clothed your body, but also may you be clothed in Christ. And so what's gonna happen is we are gonna raise up prophets. But then what's gonna happen is I, I would love nothing more. I'm gonna cast a rare vision in America. 
I would love nothing more than to see the Instagrams of the prophetic people that we've raised up, feeding people in the worst block of Bushwick and showing up for that. Because if I said show up for prophetic training, we would, we would sell out a conference space. But when I say show up to feed people that you don't have to feed because they're not genetically related to you, five people show up. Blame it on James. Everybody's getting convicted, right? But this is my conviction. People say, Pastor Mike, how come when you give a prophetic word, Charisma Magazine features it, Christian Post fe features it, how come Elijah List features it, how come Nate Johnston shares your stuff, how come Chuck Pierce shares your stuff, why are you so regarded as a pro prophet? I'll tell you why. Because it's all filthy rags to me if it's not being counterbalanced by me being the hands and feet of Jesus in the earth. And all those people in that food line in Bushwick don't know I'm a renowned prophet. They just know I'm a dude with a, with a bin full of potatoes that, and I can help them. Does this make sense? One of my favorite theologians was a, a man named Randy Owens. And Randy Owens says, don't prophesy to me unless you're willing to scrub the toilet. <laughs> and for me, I've, I've known that there are people that if I ask them, do you want to preach a stadium, they'll say yes. But if I ask them, do you want to come in the morning and scrub a toilet, they'll say no. And can I tell you, in the gospel, it's all the same job. Do y'all hear me? It's all the same job. Why? Because we don't find our significance in playing the guitar. We don't find our significance in, play, in preaching in stadiums. We find our significance in Christ, in Christ alone. And because we know Jesus and Jesus knows us, I'll scrub a toilet for Jesus, I'll prophesy to somebody, I'll preach a sermon, but it's all the same job because it's all the same God. It's Jesus. He's the one. I know who I am in Him. When Billy Graham got to heaven, he didn't have to preach any sermons because everybody he was always saved, already saved. But Billy Graham was contented in heaven because he's a son, not just a preacher. And that's why I'm sick and tired of people joining churches saying, when are they going to let me preach? I don't know. I'm not in charge of that. I'm not in charge of your promotion. You're in charge of your promotion. The Bible says promotion doesn't come from man. It comes from him. And so it's between you and God. I don't get to determine when you preach. I don't get to determine when you prophesy. You determine your promotion. But see what James was saying was if you start loving other people like you love yourself, you'll understand the revelation of Christ. And he said that there is this dichotomy that we're living in and it's paradoxical. I'm gonna finish this chapter and then we're gonna close. He said, I, have our, I, I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, well, this sounds good. You take care of the faith department. I'll handle the works department. So in other words, hey, that sounds good. You'll scrub the toilets and I'll preach. No, let's both scrub the toilets and let's both preach. And this is what he says, not so fast. You can no more show your works apart from your faith that I can show your faith apart from your works faith and works. Somebody say faith and works. Works and faith. Somebody say works and faith. Fit together hand and glove. What does this mean? You did not earn your salvation. It was earned by Jesus Christ as the perfect sacrifice and you received it. But then what happens is you reciprocate what you received. And you said, God, I could never pay you back but you've been so good to me that I wanted, I'll do whatever I can to serve you and your people. Does this make sense? And so when people look at you, they know you're not saved by works, but they can't tell the difference between your works and your faith because your faith is producing works and your works is producing more faith. Does this make sense? So here's how it started for many of you. You get down on a knee, oh God, save me. I was so drunk, the room's spinning. Please, Lord, if you stop this, I promise you tomorrow I'll serve you. Come on, some of you know about that. Oh, Lord, I had the tequila and I had the worm in the tequila. <laughs> Come on now, let's keep it real. Jesus, if you get me out of this, Jesus, I slept with them. I pray I'm not pregnant. 
<laughs> Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about. Those spirits, you did this too. You forgot how to do it. I don't know what, Jesus, please, please. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Please, Jesus. And let me tell you about the goodness of God. That was the most spiritually immature prayer that you've ever, ever prayed, but he didn't judge you. Matter of fact, he came over to you and he big began to lay his hand on you and he said, I've been waiting. That's all I ever wanted was for you to reach out. And he picked you up and he, he began to clothe you with righteousness and he began to restore you and he began to take you on a journey. I got chills all over my body and you might not be who you're supposed to be, but you're not who you used to be. And some of you need to start praising him already. I'm not who I used to be. I haven't arrived yet, but I'm not that person anymore. And I'm thankful that I'm on a journey of sanctification. So this message is I'm narrating for you. You're not that person. Thank God you digested the worm. <laughs> you survived it. You know, but here's what happens. As you get more mature, you stop looking for everybody to take care of you. And you stop becoming, you stop being self-obsessed and then you learn the secret. I'm telling you the secret now. And most pastors can't teach this secret because they don't live this secret. The secret is your sanity is in your serving. The secret is whatever you want, help other people get it and you will get it. Whatever you feel called to do, platform somebody else to do it and your platform will increase. If you want to preach, how many people are you releasing into the streets to preach? If you want a ministry, don't have a ministry, give that ministry away. That's what Jesus did. Jesus said, hey guys, Acts chapter 1, it's better that I go. I'm going to leave my Holy Spirit. And most pastors, they say, it's better if I stay and do it all myself. So let me tell you the secret. I want to tell you a story. The last story is Ivan Marty was a founding member of this church. And he was my one of my my good friends and I talk about him often on stage because he was a very rare person he lived out James chapter 2 I said God have I met anybody that really lived this out well Ivan was born with a genetic disease and nobody lives past the age of 40 with this disease and this disease over time causes you to have incredible pain in your body pain in your joints I mean just excruciating pain all in your body and when I met him, I didn't know this. And he, our church was very small. And so I would disciple him and I would meet him and we would have conversations and he would reveal things to me. Well, anyways, I didn't know it, but from the very first time I met Ivan, the clock was ticking to when he was going to die. He was the first major death that we experienced as a church and it just affected us on a deep level. We ended up holding his uh, funeral service in our Long Island campus, and I had the privilege of preaching with my friend's casket next to me. And when I think about his life, he was in excruciating pain. I'll never forget, he said, he had a big surgery that was coming up and it was for a hip replacement because they were doing surgeries to try to see if they could manage his pain, you know, in that last stage of life. And um, he said, I just, he said, I just want my pastor. He said, I just want my pastor. Can you just come to the hospital? I said, yeah, Ivan, I'm there. And he came out of that surgery and I did not know that he was living in excruciating pain because he made it his mission to be the best encourager. That was his gift, that was his anointing was encouragement. But he was in the most pain. He could barely move, he could barely walk. But if you met Ivan, he would encourage you. And there was an oil that flowed from his life of encouragement in the midst of pain. And I believe the reason why he was one of our founding members is because he deposited that anointing in our house, knowing that we were all gonna go through pain, but our pain will never be an excuse to why we cannot pour the oil of gladness and the oil of encouragement to all those around us. I mean, to his last breath, he was encouraging. I would wake up, he would send encouraging messages to me. I mean, everybody, when we did his funeral, we found out that he was sending hundreds of messages every day to encourage everybody else. And nobody knew. 
We all thought we were special. I got up there, I said, I was Ivan's favorite. It's, then everybody said, no, I'm his favorite. And we realized he was sending hundreds of messages of encouragement a day. So you know what his pain pill was? His pain pill was serving. His pain pill was encouraging. His pain, he was finding relief. The only way the gospel teaches us to find relief, he was saying, I'm being crucified, but nevertheless, there's something powerful in that. And this is how I'm ending it, because we need the anointing and the mantle of Ivan Marty on this house. It's foolishness to let your depression make you selfish. It's foolishness to let your pain make you selfish. God has something for you in the book of James, and this is the end, this is the end. Ivan's phrase that he lived by was play injured. Because he realized I'm gonna be in, my, in pain my entire life, so I got two choices. I could just lay down in my bed and wait to die, or I can play this game of life injured every single day. And he made up his mind, I'm gonna play injured. And I don't know who this is for, but you started in this kind of prayer, but God is saying, hey look, I know you still need some healing, but you need to start playing injured. I know that you still need some freedom, but you need to play injured. I know you haven't arrived yet, but it's time for you to become the encourager. Stop going to church, being mad at every because you didn't get an encouraging word when I'm going to cause you to be the one that releases it but the oil that comes through you also gets on you come on stand to your feet so I'll shut up because I feel the anointing if I would have only ministered on the days where I felt like ministering I would have only ministered a couple of days if I would have only encouraged, when I felt encouraged, I would have only encouraged a couple of days. But the gospel says Jesus died even though he didn't want to die. Jesus served even though he didn't want to serve. So to become like him is to do what he did. Can somebody say amen to that? I'm going to play injured. Somebody say play injured. That's a healthy church. And I feel this on the inside of me, the oil that comes through you also gets on you. And you know what that does to me in my soul? This is why I started crying. Because I'll minister to hundreds and hundreds of people and then I'll go home. I probably shouldn't say this. I don't want to steal my reward. But every Sunday, I start on my belly I get down on my belly every Sunday of the history of this church. I get down on my belly on the floor and I humble myself before the Lord. And I say, Lord, you speak, not me. Your, your will, just you, you take over, God. You do what you need to do. I'll get out of the way. I'll, I'm just a vessel. But then I end every single Sunday. I get down on my knees and I say, God, thank you for all that you did. And I will tell you the truth. I'm overwhelmed every Sunday at what God does because I realized that as I was pouring oil all day, it was splashing all over me and I'm more refreshed because I did the refreshing than if I would have stayed home. Does this make sense? I could tell you're clapping now. You were quiet earlier, does that make sense? And so what do I want you to do? We're gonna pray in a moment. But what I want, and then we're gonna sing this song, You're Worthy of It All. I want you to be this turnaround where he said it started with a desperate prayer of, of selfishness, but I'm on this journey and I'm gonna begin to be like Ivan. I'm gonna begin to serve. I'm joining a dream team. I'm gonna begin to, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping in. Pastor Mike, I'll see you in that food line. Let, when is it me? I, like, what do I have to do? I'm gonna load the pantry up at the Indiana location. Like, sign me up. Whatever I gotta do, I gotta get this thing flowing. That's the prayer because that's a healthy church. Faithfulness, devotion to one, one another. The people that you hate are making you better. And if God removed your haters, he would remove your teachers because they're teaching you patience. They're teaching you kindness. They're teaching you gentleness. You feel that? So let them do the work. How many of you feel like this is meat? How many of you just feel like in your soul, you feel encouraged? You feel ready. I got the answer. I know what to do. Do you feel it in your belly? I feel a peace in my belly. Let me pray for you, Father. I pray for each and every one of them. Lord, that we would just be strengthened in our belly, God. Somebody, I hear your voice. You're saying, but I don't want to do it anymore. 
but I feel so tired. There's something that happens in overtime. I don't know how to explain it to you, but that is the time where you dig in even more. The thing I learned about, about Gethsemane is when the sweat turns to blood and runs down your forehead, that is getting ready to become the moment of the greatest breakthrough on the other side. So I don't know who I'm talking to right now, but you're saying, but Pastor Mike, I, I've given all I can give. And the Lord's saying, no, give one more. Give one more. When you step into that direction and you do it, the Lord, some of you are saying, yeah, but I got used at my last church. No, everything you did, you did it unto the Lord. And the Lord's saying, I received it as worship to me directly. They didn't understand. They didn't acknowledge, but you did it to me. You did it for me, says the Lord. He, the Lord's even going to redeem previous seasons. And I see some of you stepping in now and you're going to say, well, that season didn't make sense, but now it makes sense. What I learned there, I don't know why I learned it, but now it made sense. And the Lord says, I'm getting ready to start you on an unlikely path. And as you begin to walk that unlikely path, I'm going to begin to fulfill the desire unaware. As you've delighted yourself in me, as you pushed into the promise, as you begin to serve and minister to others, the Lord says, I'm going to begin to do it in a mysterious way. I'm going to begin to do it in an alternative way. I'm going to walk you a different path than you planned, a different path than you perceive, says the Lord. But it's a path that I'm destined says the Lord. And the Lord says, as I begin to take you on this path, it's going to change from anxiety to excitement. Anxiety to excitement. I see the Lord exchanging anxiety for excitement. And the Lord says, yes, you're going to have heart palpitations, but not the palpitations of anxiety. But your heart's going to race. And the Lord says, I'm restoring childhoods this year. And I'm going to begin to take you back to the place of a child, says the Lord. And you're going to learn dependence on me again, says the Lord. And you're going to learn that place of trusting in me like you've never trusted me before. Because I, the Lord, am going to restore a childhood to you. And I'm going to begin to take you to that place of dependence upon me. Dependence upon me. Dependence on me. Lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways, you will learn to acknowledge me. And I will direct this path, says the Lord. Even as a child, you will sleep. Even as a child, you will rest. Even as a child you will have expectation for what's up ahead because I am turning fear into faith and your faith will birth works says the Lord I am turning fear into faith and your faith will birth works says the Lord somebody begin to shout somebody begin to come into agreement somebody begin to celebrate come on we need 10 seconds come on we got to celebrate what the Lord just spoke come on if you come into agreement just begin to celebrate what the Lord said come on church let's sing this out come on you're worthy God